for May 24th, 2021. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 673. Somebody once told me... It's Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet, never happier than when we are sitting together and talking about the things we enjoy, or, as the case may be, the things that we enjoyed not sure if you know this because, you know, uh, I suppose a lot of news crowded this important and consequential item uh, out over the past week. But uh, over the past week, specifically on May 18th, 2021, was the 20th anniversary of the release of a little film, a little indie art film called Shrek. Uh <laughs> About a, uh, about a, you know, a loner, an outsider who really comes to terms with this place in society. <laughs> And, uh, over the, over the course of this film. And, uh, since it is streaming on Hulu and we all had access to it, we thought, Hey, let's, uh, let's watch Shrek again and see what Shrek is like at uh, 20. So let me introduce to you your panel of ogres. I'm Matt Rather and I'm here with, uh, with ogre Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. And uh, Ogre Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. Coming at you live from the swamp. <laughs> from, the, from the actual swamp. Isn't that funny? Uh, well, so what was the experience like? Mark, you might have suggested this to us as a topic. So what was the experience like? We can, we can go into the, the movie itself and the, you know, kind of re-describe it, having watched it, uh, all three of us, uh, within the last couple of days. But just as far as like 20 years later, what did you notice about Trek when you were watching it? I'll come out straight and say that it was better than I thought it was going to be. It had aged better than I thought. Now, here's why. Like the, the 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 lens of of memory and like stretching back 20 years is a really interesting one. In my mind, this movie had uh, gotten worse for a few specific reasons. One, uh, Mike Myers' career um, kind of you know took a significant nosedive uh, a few years after this movie came yeah. out. Um, as did Eddie Murphy's as well. Um, the fact that, uh, Smash Mouth, um, right. Who had two smash hit songs, uh, pun intended, um, on this, in this movie, um, they had to kind of, it's fair to say they become a, a punchline, right. Um, a bit of a, a, almost consider them a novelty act, right. This was just like a weird late nineties, uh, pop music thing. Um, what are the things that kind of made this poor? Oh, the the, the dated would, cultural, would, very specific and dated cultural references. Would you movie. say, Mark, but, that that the world yep. rolled them a, a bit? Yes, they were, perhaps were not the sharpest tools in the shed. Oh well, yeah, fair enough. Um, dated cultural references that kind of go along that are of a piece with the Smash Mouth piece, right? The the Matrix bit, which was which is slayed in the movie theater. I remember that very specifically. And then the Macarena again, also just just cutting edge, just really hitting the sweet spot of humor. At the time, um, but more than anything else, I think is just a massive oversaturation of Shrek in the pop culture. Right since then, it was a 2001 movie, huge, huge hit. Since then, and then spawned several sequels, um, stage musical, uh, holiday special, spin-off movie, so on and so forth. It was just ever inescapable. People got tired of it, um, and so for all those reasons, it was like, oh, was, Shrek, was Shrek bad? Is Shrek bad? Um, and I'm I'm happy to report. That the answer is a qualified no. Huh. Shrek is not bad. Yeah. Shrek was not bad. Shrek is not bad. That's that was my takeaway from having seen Shrek. Pete, Matt, what do you guys what do you guys remember from? What about you, Pete? 
Um, I would say I came to it from a different but related perspective to Mark, which is that as somebody who was in and around a kind of comedy scene in a medium sized city, I noticed how there was a certain age of people, you know, who were, you know, maybe somewhere somewhere in the neighborhood of five to 15 years younger than I am, where you hit this stratus and Shrek became this huge cultural touchstone for them. Like I've seen entire big groups of people, you know, start a spontaneous warm up by someone just saying somebody and then just everybody in this whole circle of 30 people singing the song in unison. And so for all of the certainly the belief that that there is a desire uh, Shrek, you know, things about Shrek have been mocked. Uh, there is a certain decline in the work of Mike Myers and Eddie Murphy as they moved to this sort of different kind of fair and they weren't as edgy or as young as they used to be and, and other things were going on as well. Uh, and certainly because it felt like, I think, part of a movement towards a kind of child's movie that as, you know, not children at the time and not parents at the time, we didn't particularly appreciate at the time. I, I definitely expected Shrek to be weird and I remembered it as bad, but I remembered Shrek 2 more than I remembered Shrek 1 by a pretty large margin because I saw Shrek 2 in the theater. I didn't see Shrek 1 in the theater. But anyway, I went into Shrek thinking like, OK, the big thing about Shrek to remember is that it is the movie that introduces the idea that kids movies need to have contemporary non sequitur inside jokes for the adults in them. And that way the adults will bring the kid to go see the movie because the adult feels like they're being entertained too. And this is, this is very, very different from something like the little mermaid, which might have an occasional nod here or there, but like Sebastian, the crab never says like, I'm a stairmaster. I'm a master of stairs. Right. Like, uh, in, in, <laughs> In the thing. And I remember, I think it was in Shrek 2, there was a scene where, oh, maybe I'm, maybe, it's like, you think about, is it Shrek 2? Is it Despicable Me? Is there, I remember there being like a whole bunch of people running out of one Starbucks and into another Starbucks. And I think that was in Shrek 2. And that's what I expected to get from Shrek, was was a, a machine gun of then contemporary cultural references, uh, basically forming an inadequate connective tissue for the fairy tale story. But in actual OG Shrek, the story is much more balanced than I anticipated it was going to be. It felt Air Bud-ish in that respect, wherein the participation of the dog in the basketball game in the first movie is actually pretty earned and is for, like, good reasons, right? <laughs> like, it's through character-driven reasons. I think we talked about it on our Air Bud cast when we did it, right? It's like the kid is trying to cope with the loss of his father, and everybody kind of knows that he's been playing basketball with the dog, and they like kind of let the dog do it as, like, a favor to the kid, but also as a thumb in the eye of the other coach. Every Everybody knows it's a joke who's an adult, but the kid has a certain amount of magic in it. Like, and then you get to Air Buddies and it's like, oh no, it's three golden retrievers who need to save Christmas. You know, or Santa Buddies. It's like, okay, we're way past the point where any of this is earned. Shrek feels pretty earned. And the thing that really struck me about Shrek was that the themes in it that really stood out to me seemed very contemporary and relevant which I definitely did not uh, expect because this was a movie from a long time ago and a lot of movies from a long time ago don't hold up too well when, when talking about contemporary cultural issues. And, and I would venture to say that Shrek is more of a touchstone for its relevance than you would have thought and less one just out of a sort of shame 
sort of uh, you know nostalgia, this idea of like it has a lot to do with shame, but but more in a more deep and profound way. Right? Yeah. It's not just like oh, we all saw this movie; it's terrible. Let's all joke about it. It's that's not what it's what's going on when people are talking about Shrek. No, it's you know, Pete. This is funny because it's something that we've identified on the show really over the last year as we've been kind of consciously looking back. At, I mean, we're conscious when we watch most of the movies uh, that yeah. I mean some some of them you know that certainly. Uh, certainly Battleship. Wonder Woman 1984, I, was, I might have fallen unconscious. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> That's, you know, uh, I was thinking of, of Battleship. I was very conscious because it was extremely loud. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that, like, as, we, as we've been with intention sort of looking back at old, old movies, uh, I was thinking of Point Break the other day because uh, I rode my bicycle uh, past a little establishment called Patrick's Roadhouse on Pacific Coast Highway, and took I took a picture of it for you. I kept meaning to text it to you. I'll do that after we're done recording. The um, the uh, the thing that we've discovered is that the the films are sort of stranger than we remember because, like in memory, everything gets reduced to kind of a unit, a, like a, a brick in your your wall of narrative, right? In in retrospect, everything becomes like the the two or three index card bullet points. Points that you can remember uh, about it for discussion at cocktail parties. I don't know why um, that metaphor is is useful. I don't know. It sort of dates back to like our college days when it's like it's important to learn the two or three bullet points of of Immanuel Kant um, to that you can talk about at cocktail parties. I, I've not been to many cocktail parties, honestly, <laughs> in my life. And at the ones I've been to, the one thing that we didn't talk about was Immanuel Kant. That, that actually might have been on the invitation with like along, you know, along with like elegant cocktail attire slash no discussion of Immanuel Kant and the, uh, the, you know, Copernican revolution in epistemology. None of, none of that. But- but Matt, did you talk about Shrek? <laughs> well, you know, well, yeah, I mean, and my one, my one thing, um, my one sort of bullet point about Shrek is that I like, uh, I just like Leonard Cohen's All Star a lot better than the, uh, than the one that actually is in the film. Um, <laughs> like the, uh, somebody once told me the world was gonna rule me. Oh my god, I'm imagining it. Somebody, somebody on the internet go out when, and report when that. Leonard was in Idra, he was trying to reach for a part of the human experience that was hostile to the world around it, but reveling in this hedonism, right? It's uh, you know, almost like the world itself is a swamp, and uh, and and he's the donkey. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who, who, uh, who even is the donkey? I, I guess the pop culture references, like what, what it's a development from Aladdin. Like I, I date it to Aladdin, mm. the kind of the, the advent of that. So in the early nineties and that like, um, that, yeah, this was sort of the, or, or that like, that was sort of like it was acceptable to, to put those kinds of references in and, and it, it has, to, it's like a cryptic crossword clue. Um, a t- you know, a topic I've, I've recently learned about and, and sort of investigated, right? Like the surface of it has to read smoothly. Um, but the, the, it, if this, if this style of putting in adult jokes, jokes targeted at adults, though actually in Shrek, there were one or two adult jokes, 
right? <laughs> like that. Oh, like, definitely. Yeah. About uh, about what what uh, Lord Farquhar was compensating for, not not just his small stature, one imagines, but the the oral sex oral sex references oral sex for sure. Yeah, that like implied, but um, not um, uh, literal. Yeah, good. But that exactly like that, you know. So there there's like there's a a sort of strong adult targeted joke to the weak adult targeted joke, and I'd argue that Aladdin is really pretty solidly on the strong side of the spectrum that is to say they don't there is a there is kind of an unbroken surface of the story um that you can follow you know and the jokes can kind of the jokes can kind of happen as asides and yeah i guess by by the time you get to to shrek 2 it's a little more gag driven you know it's it's and and by the time you get to 30 rock really those gags are a lot more important or i uh, let's say in in the animated universe family guy by the time you get to family guy mm. those gags are really the point of the uh really the point of the the thing rather than even whatever the the skeleton of the plot might be upon which they're draped like uh christmas ornaments so yeah it was it was interesting but the the for something that aged pretty well and i think like the the quality of aging pretty well has to do with with how solid the the sort of core of the story is um so maybe we can go into that but for for something that aged so well it made the the like the matrix bullet time joke uh you know it made the macarena bit um feel dated you know um i mean the point of, of fairy tales is that they can be kind of told and retold and retold and they don't they kind of belong to everyone equally right and that that uh you know it does it's not it's not dated i mean it's a long time ago you know it's once upon a time but that is a that is not a specific date every every date stands in the same relation to once upon a time as every other date uh does in in actual history so the things the things that date it and the the soundtrack also dated it and i mean i i was wondering i couldn't think in my head of another animated film that before this one that functioned like this one without sort of original songs creating creating a world but with the kind of the reference being to i guess what's called music supervision right where you like drop in uh leonard cohen's all-star uh leonard cohen's i'm a believer leonard cohen's um you know, uh, all, all, Leonard Cohen's on the road again, uh, and, and Leonard Cohen's hallelujah. Like those, all of those Leonard Cohen songs, um, to do the, uh, uh, to do the soundtrack that, that I suppose dates it as well, though not, I don't know, not in the, not in the way that the, the, like the Macarena psychag, um, dates it, but we should maybe go into what the film is, about Pete, you said it was it was about shame. So I'm I'm guessing we're about to get Freudian here. Uh, I mean, we could get Freudian. We get more Jungian than Freudian if we want. Uh, but we could get a little bit Freudian. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody once told what is, me, "What is what is the swamp?" You know, what you, <laughs> exactly. What That's, okay, okay. So so the thing that sticks out to me to anchor the whole movie is the opening shot. Uh, the opening sequence, well, not the Princess Bride undercut sequence, where it sounds like we're going to be told this story in the manner that the Princess Bride is told to us, and then the narrator, who is Shrek, kind of dismissing that whole enterprise and, and kind of sending us on our way. But what we get is a fairly intimate and upfront and intense experience of Shrek's body, right? 
is if there's that that's not the first thing that happens. First is this is that happens before the villagers show up, right? Is that Shrek is like naked taking a shower, right? And he's like, and it's a mud shower, right? And he's like squelching in the ground, and his name comes up when he smears the mud, and he's eating the gooey bugs, and he's uh, he's just he's in the and his name and the name the names of the credits, right? Are he's brushing, out. yeah, he's brushing his teeth with the the whatever he squeezes out of the little slug or whatever. Right, 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 right. And this is while somebody once told, well, while Al Ulstar by Smash Mouth is playing, which is, of course, a song about, uh, it's about Heidegger, right? And kind of like existential, the Dasein, <laughs> and like the being for whom being is an issue, right? Uh, it's not, you might as well be walking on the sun. It's not quite so Camus. But, uh, but, um, but like, st- just, to, just to touch on that without just throwing that away, because this is, overthinking it unfortunately i can google all-star and get results other than the lyrics to all-star by smash mouth which is ridiculous um but you know uh heidegger heidegger uh problematic philosopher in his later years smash mouth problematic band in their recent (laughs) years so it's not not like heidegger i mean guy fieri only dresses like one of them all right so okay so 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 All Star to me feels like similar song in its overall message to Katy Perry's Firework, right? Uh-huh. Which is like all this bad stuff is happening in the inevitability of the world. So you should take it upon yourself to recognize that you're beautiful and amazing and kind of fully actualize and be yourself like as much as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you know, the the years start coming and they don't stop coming. Right. Is is his. Uh, People, people will sometimes on social media say like, man, that's really profound as if it's a joke, right? As if they were, that's, if that's not exactly what they were saying, right? As if Smash Mouth was 20 when they wrote this song, which uh, I'm pretty sure they weren't, right? right? So, uh, I mean, maybe they were, but I don't think they were. I don't know how old Smash Mouth is, but I don't think they were that young. But the point being that like Shrek is living his life. He's living his best life, really, which is a phrase that would only come to be used many, many years after this movie, right? But this is the example of Shrek living his best life as Shrek in his swamp. And and you have to, I think, read the mud of the credits as feces. I think there's just poop everywhere, right? And, and we're introducing a really basic and elemental form of humor, which is you know you know scat, as it were. But right, we're 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 gonna, this is going to be a movie that has gross out fun for the kids, right? And why is gross out humor funny? Uh, because the bodies are funny, and body and and also because even as children we experience the tension between the world expecting us not to fart or poop and our ex- immediate experience necessitating it on many occasions, right? So like, so all the these world expects we, yeah. me to not pull uh, earwax out of my ear and use that as a candle. <laughs> and yet <laughs> right, right, right. it is, yeah. it is a thing that you see on screen in this. I mean, I do think the Downton Abbey moment of the movie is uh, when he goes to the information kiosk and he pulls the lever and it tells you the rules, Right of Lord Farquaad's castle. And one of the rules is you have to, you know, wash your face and your, and it's going to say ass, right? That you have to wash your ass, right? There is, of course, a main character in this movie who is an ass, but they won't say ass and they like titter about it, right? And so you you were presented with a character who is all body, is Shrek. He's just, he's fully in his body, Adi, all of the Adi, bodily fluids Adi, around Adi. him. What? Yeah, Adi, Adi. <laughs> Body, body, body. Yeah, there yeah. we go. There, we go. body, body. Can you, is that what you're talking about? You're doing uh, Macho Man by the Village People. <laughs> oh, or? Sure, yeah, the Leonard <laughs> Leonard Cohen's Macho Man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but is, the, if there is, is there a better description of Shrek, I don't know what it is. Leonard Cohen's Macho Man. 
Yeah. So, but, so you know, in in uh, Freudian psychosexual development, the anal yeah. stage takes place between one and three years old, uh, and whereas the the um, the previous stage, the oral stage, focused on the mouth and the the nursing infant, right? The anal stage focuses on uh, the the poop hole as the primary erogenous zone uh, of of this stage of the rectum, and that um, the the sort of pleasure of controlling. Uh, or refusing to control elimination, bowel and bladder elimination, um, is what, uh, you know, is the kind of the primary area on which the, the sort of drama of this, this particular stage of, of Freudian psychosexual development is, that is, that is the stage upon, upon which it happens. And so, you know, toilet training is like the major, um, like developmental milestone, I guess, in, in Freud's view here. This is like, this is a different view than I know we've talked about like Eros, Erickson, um, Erickson before, but the, the sort of, um, the interesting, um, the interesting thing is that if you get psychologically fixed at a, at a particular stage, if normal development doesn't happen for you, you know, at, at each of Freud's stages, you know, one of the, the theory goes that you get, um, particular, uh, symptoms in adulthood. And there are two, uh, that are, that are, I think are relevant here. One is anal retentive, which is, you know, obsessively neat or, uh, very organized, really focused on, on control, you know, and, and really focused on the, the, um, the sort of refusal of elimination, right? And then, or anal expulsive, which is, uh, like disorganized, disheveled, uh, careless, defiant, um, and, and, uh, and, you know, is, is focused on, on just unchecked elimination of the sort that Pete, that you describe in the opening sequence of, of Shrek. So I think that, that, um, you know, I don't know. I think that, that we're not, not Freudian when we're, when we're, uh, in this particular well, swamp. So very tellingly, right. You know, as he, uh, approaches, um, the dragon's lair, right? And they, they speak of the smell of brimstone. Uh-huh. Uh, and it is, uh, Strack specifically says that, you know, it's not his farts, um, because if it were his farts, I believe the donkey would be dead. So uh, as he is approaching, um, you know, uh, um, uh, his, uh, his kind of, you know, uh, psychological development, sexual development is about to meet Princess Fiona, he is able to control his anal eliminations. I mean, there's some there. I don't know, Matt, <laughs> if you're talking out of your ass, with this Alfredian uh, interpretation here, but um, there, there's not, it's, it's not, not relevant. Well, okay. Uh, can I throw in a, a, an alternative also? Cause I, you said Freud, I said young, Freud, young, Freud, young. Okay. So I want to read a little excerpt here, not to dismiss this, but to incorporate it. Uh, this is from an introduction to Jungian psychology notes on the seminar on analytical psychology. This is a lecture and discussion that took place in 1925 with uh-huh. the uh, psychologist Carl Jung. And he's talking about um, uh, introversion versus extroversion, right? And the collective subconscious, right? So uh, the, the question here is, if you were told that a person had an extroverted attitude toward the material of the collected unconscious, what would you take it to mean? 
And he said, and this is Dr. D'Angelo is asking him. Dr. Young says, it's difficult to say. What do you think it means? Because he's a psychologist. And Dr. D'Angelo says, I don't know what it means. And this is what Dr. Young says. He says, in the case of the introvert, his attitude toward his collective images is that of the extrovert toward the outside world. He lives through them as in a romance or adventure. The extrovert, on the other hand, takes his unconscious material in an, in an introverted. Uh, this anecdote is related, it's not found in the literature. This way, that is, with extreme caution and with many incantations to exercise the inner power the object exercises over him. Here's the relevant part. The extrovert, seeing a green spot, jumps in and gets up to his neck in a swamp, but pulls out, shakes himself, and goes merrily on his way. If the introvert does that, he is almost incapacitated for taking a walk ever again and blames everything in heaven and earth for his mistake. But if the swamp is in himself, he can jump in and come out unharmed. While to the extrovert, the swamp within himself is to be avoided at all costs. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I do agree. I think that there is an element to which uh, Shrek is a movie about retention and expulsion, right? That Lord Farquaad is the clenched butt and Shrek is the relaxed butt, uh-huh. right? And that this relates to and this relates to a failure on Lord Farquaad's part for of proper socialization at a very young age because he he's not capable of kind of appreciating and connecting with other people because everything is so tense and he's so driven inward at his own design over what he wants to do to the point that he becomes genocidal maniac, right? Um, you could also say that like Shrek is kind of all body and Farquaad is all head, right? Even though Shrek also has a big <laughs> head, Farquaad has like a tiny, tiny body and Shrek has this big body. And in a Jungian sense of the collective subconscious, if you're talking about fairy tales, right, uh, which is, you know, one of the big things that Jung in his model for psychology, you know, associates with the collective subconscious that we're all supposedly collective unconscious, we're all supposedly accessing as we live. Farquaad is an example of somebody who is just very, very driven inward in this obsession about his internal images and is trying to exert some sort of control over them. Whereas Shrek is somebody who lives with, who is the internal image and kind of lives with regard to the outside world, right? Like Shrek's relationship with the collective subconscious, um, he needs to develop it over the course of the movie because he's not aware of how he feels about his own swamp, right? Which is that he wants to share it with people. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's one, one of the things you're saying, I mean, this is neither here nor there, Pete, but the, the, um, what you're talking about is the kind of the correct or sort of Jungian correct understanding of the terms introversion and extroversion, right? Right, Ra- right, right. Rather than like what we think of them as like the Myers Briggs test or so, or something like that. <laughs> right. And he meant it's it's maybe beyond our scope here, but he meant something different. Nothing uh, is beyond our scope here. Explain <laughs> so, it. Tell me what. Fair. Tell me what. No, it no. Means. What it, what it, it is? It's this. This we're sort talking of, about Shrek, Matt. This is important. We can bust out all this. Take it. Pull out all the cannons. Roll them up, fill them with powder. Yeah, the, away. just sort of the orientation towards the own psyche, or the the orientation towards kind of objects out in in the world, or or versus your internal objects, like uh, is what he's he's talking about, and not like you know, I sometimes get I, I sometimes get scared when I have to ask for ex- extra ketchup or something like that. You know, so would you a, say that in a Jungian sense, an introverted person would want to put his own name on the outside of his building because he sees his building 
uh, because he's fundamentally internally oriented on himself. Whereas an extroverted person in the Jungian sense would put up a bunch of signs that say keep out and stay out around his home because he doesn't want to turn inward well, on, uh, on what's going on in his own experience. I mean, that, right. That is an, it's an interesting thing because you're, you're, I, I can't tell whether you're, you're, uh, you know, being, being facetious or not, but it, there does seem to be. I'm talking about Shrek, Matt. This is serious. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about Shrek. I'm talking about Shrek. I'm not talking about Shrek 2, where you go and give every pop culture joke you can in, in one. Not in the far, far away, Matt. We're here in the swamp. This is real life. I'm talking about Shrek, okay? This is Shrek. This is yeah. Shrek. Um, that that uh, th- there do seem to be two axes operating here, right? Like, yeah. and one has to do with um, one has to do with like an internal disposition uh, towards towards one's own psyche, either turned in towards one's psyche or way out from from one's psyche, and seeing sort of things out in the world as you know. Um, like if Shrek is happy, he's happy. But if, if Lord Farquhar is, you know, um, performing happiness, he's happy. Or if he has the trappings of happiness, I mean, it's, it is telling that his castle is actually a theme park, right? Is this sort of simulacrum of a, of a, uh, you know, medieval village or, or whatever it is, this sort of Disneyland like, uh, thing. It, it's also important. To, to know that that uh lord farquhar is um who made this universal made this right uh so the jeffrey katzenberg connections are very important by the way right because he was involved in the um the, the classic disney animation movies right including aladdin which you mentioned before yeah um and then did not get uh the prime like you know head job at disney and took up picked up his toys and went and formed their, their studio which was uh dreamworks skg right and so i th- I think the little guy is supposed to be michael eisner uh that mm, like there you go. yeah yeah there you go <laughs> no i'm ser- i'm serious i think yeah. there are like and yeah. and if you were in that particular feud i i have a feeling that there are a couple of like in jokes about uh about michael eisner and also sort of like locking up the um Locking up all the fairy tale characters being, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a metaphor, an allegory, I suppose, for, um, Michael Eisner trying to like lock down all of the classic fairy tales, you know, with Disney's kind of relentless defense of its own IP and, and maybe overzealous, you know, um, reaching to, to keep people from things that actually ought to be in, in the public domain, right? Because it's, it's notable how many of the, the things are, um, like the term in music is a sound alike where you, you, uh, you play a song that's, if it, suppose you couldn't afford to license Smash Mouth's All Star, you know, you would play a song that sounded just like All Star, except was like two or three notes, two or three notes different, um, to, to clear the, uh, you know, to clear the, the, uh, rights, um, for that per- particular song. So that, like, uh, so many of the fairy tale characters are sort of lookalike versions of, of their canonical Disney, uh, versions. Like the three, uh, fairies from Cinderella or, yeah. you know, the, the seven dwarfs and, I mean, a lot of the princesses, you know, the, the seven dwarfs and, and so on and so on and so on. Yeah. Like Pinocchio so- and Peter Pan with Tinkerbell and the fairy dust. Yeah, for sure. For all, sure. All, all the ones you're blocking up. Yeah, yeah exactly. and not so so they are takeoffs of they are 
uh, you know, slight, slightly refracted versions of the Disney versions, not of the the Hans Christian Andersen or the you know Grimm's brother uh, Grimm brothers uh, versions, right? It's not like they've gone back to the original source material. They're 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 mocking the Disney version. But okay, so sorry. The the first axis has to do with with introversion versus extroversion, and I think you you have to you have to like say there's a second axis around. Um, positive uh, around sort of positive, uh, like social relationships and kind of feeling, feeling positive about, about social relationships and feeling negative about, about social relationships, right? And they're, they're related but distinct. You know, Lord Farquhar wants to be around a lot of people. The reason he wants to be around a lot of people is because he needs the people to kind of reflect back to him that he's, uh, uh, you know, that he's successful, that he wins, that he's the, the ruler, that he's the king. And that, like, um, he spends all this time talking to his mirror, you know, and, and not only only talking to the mirror but like making the mirror like replay his thing his uh his animated film over and over and over and over whereas shrek who is the one who is actually into the world uh right is or uh you know um is very uh is you know is wants to to keep away from everyone like he wants the experience of going in the swamp and and you know splashing around but uh doesn't want anyone else uh, around while while he's doing it probably because his own his own happiness is is sort of complete if his own happiness is complete and he doesn't need anyone else around um to you know to tell him to tell him that that he is uh and it's only well, I'm uh, sorry. I'll I'll leave it there because I've been talking talking a while. Um, yeah. I yeah. mean, Mark, did you want to react? Because I could launch right in off of this, and then we could bounce off each other doing Shrek theory for a while. Well, but I, I just want to put just uh, one interesting side note since we had a little bit of kind of behind the scenes uh, studio talk there just a second. Um, like this, it's really interesting to think of Shrek as like have already been um in a good place, you know, for lack of a better word, at right. the beginning of this, right? And there's no like. Um, he, he's not outwardly missing something, right? He just like has this irritating problem that comes along and he, he was just fine and good being alone in his swamp. Um, uh, and only later does it come to, you know, develop, you know, this realize the, the need for romance and companionship in him. Um, uh, thanks to the uh, donkey and, and princess Fiona. Um, but, uh, what I learned as part of this kind of whole, you know, 20th anniversary uh, of Shrek celebration, Shrek 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 celebration uh, that we've been having is that Chris Farley um, was originally supposed to be the voice of Shrek, and in one of the clips uh, that where he had recorded dialogue and they'd put that to uh, you know, very rough storyboard animations. Um, we find out that Shrek has this whole like the original script for this was for Shrek to have all this internal psychological um, issues that go back to his parents and uh, the sense of abandonment and that then that kind of helps explain some of like why Shrek is such a loner and uh, ostensibly a misanthrope at the beginning. So it's, it's fascinating that they just dropped all of that. And then we just meet Shrek as a fully formed ogre in yeah, the swamp, well, and then all the stuff comes on. Yeah, go ahead, in the, so I guess so. So to take it back all the way to the source material, right? Is that this is a this is based on a book by the guy who did all those New Yorker cartoons, which is just hilarious, right? Um, mm. Which is Will, Will, William Steig, right? Who did which? And I felt like there were a bunch of moments in this movie where I was like, that could be a New Yorker cartoon. That could be a New Yorker cartoon. Like the donkey coming in on top of the the. Um, the dragon saying something dry and urbane about the society that's gathered for the wedding. But the core idea is that Shrek is very ugly and he goes on and he's angry and he goes on a quest and he meets an ugly princess and they're really happy together. Right. That's the joke, right? Is I'm ugly. You're ugly. We're ugly together. 
And I think if you're looking to elaborate on that, there's a bunch of different directions that you can take it to make it not as one note. And it seems like in the Chris Farley one, they wanted Shrek to be an adolescent who, right? Because I think he was right. living with his parents and he was trying to get away from his parents. And if you're talking about this being a movie about the grossness of the human body, then adolescence is a great time to uh, set such a movie in terms of, you know, where in a person's life, such as Labyrinth, which is about a lot of the same things that Shrek is about and also heavily features a swamp, right? Um, Labyrinth is a movie about female adolescence, right? And uh, and and Shrek is a... Uh, is a movie about is not a movie about adolescence, right? But it could have been because it could have been. Oh, I, I'm in this mucky swamp. Everybody hates me. I don't. I'm never going to get along with anybody. I have no agency in my life, right? Like I, I want to go out and be a big hero, but I can't because I'm a terrible monster, right? And and these are all kind of the kinds of things that you would come across in any sort of paranormal teenage drama, right? If you were to watch, uh, many of which have been made before, during, and after the time that the Shrek movies have come out. But, oh my God, <laughs> I'm a sexy teenage vampire and blood is now a big part of my life. I'm such a monster. No one would ever love me, right? It's like, easy there, Shrek. I'm turning into um, a vampire. No one, no, my body does things I can't explain. I can't yeah. dwell the light in the darkness, right? Um, no, but that's, but, it's interesting to, to imagine. This is actually exactly where I was going to go next. It's interesting to imagine the counterfactual movie in which Farquhar, you know, relocates his like concentration camp of, of fairy tale characters <laughs> somewhere else. Right. And, and Shrek's just fine. No, he doesn't, you know, cause he doesn't really, it seems like he doesn't participate in like municipal elections. You know, he's not that concerned Matt, about Matt, his are neighborhood. You saying, are you saying that ogres in fact don't have layers? Because I'm pretty sure that they do. <laughs> I think, I think you guys are maybe taking Shrek a little bit. You guys are maybe taking a reclusive misanthrope a little too much at his word when he says he doesn't like people. Because uh, maybe he's maybe <laughs> fair, he actually fair. does like people. But, but I mean, you're right. It's like Shrek has a lot of confidence. But when that, the that first that first sequence is sort of joyful yeah. and fun, you know? Yeah. And, it, and it's interesting because Shrek is like, uh, you know, I don't know. Shrek is like he has his first apartment, you know, yeah. <laughs> like um, but he's also yeah, he's also like a child and like playing in a sandbox a little bit. So there there is this kind of like dual aspect to to him. He's supposed to he's supposed to be the the kind of the fantasy of like living without living without rules from your parents. And I guess it's it's a kind of a bit of strong storytelling that it's not like in the first beats of the story In the first beats of the story. He's great. Like I got this slug to brush my teeth with. What do you have? Do you have a slug? <laughs> you know, this, no, no, you've, you've got toothpaste and your parents make you do it. Loser. My, my finger and my thumb are in the shape of an L on my forehead <laughs> for, for oh, you. <laughs> but that, uh, you know, that, that like, um, uh, so it's not, it's not necessarily telegraphed at the beginning that there is like developmental work to do for him, that there is, right. you know, a serious lack, uh, that needs to be supplied by relationships with, uh, relationships with, with other people. Um, because his, his playing, his play outside is, is joyful. It's not like, uh, it's not like he, he like makes half of a snowman and like looks for his buddy to like put on the other half. It's not that that's a different movie, you know, and, uh, uh, and not this this movie, you know. I, I do for, think that. Yeah. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just about to say. You know, Shrek has so much to do, so much to see. <laughs> What's wrong with taking the back streets? So I think this is partly why I like 
Shrek's relationship with Fiona so much. Because even though Shrek has his problems, on a basic level, he's okay with himself. Right. And when he meets another person, he's not looking for a princess to, like, fill a gap in his life the way that Farquaad is. Even though Farquaad isn't even looking for a companion, he's looking for a title. He's looking for the sto- a narrative for himself that he can have reflected back to him with a hat and the adulation of other people. Uh, Shrek isn't looking for, you know, a partner when this when this happens. And Fiona uh, isn't really looking for him. Um, I guess Fiona has to go through a journey, too, to be, kind of be emotionally ready to be in a relationship. But I like the idea that Shrek actually does meet Fiona as a peer. Yeah. Right. And I think that their romance in this movie is actually really nice. The one with donkey and the dragon is not nice, but the one with with Shrek and Fiona is really nice. Right. Because, because I think on a certain level, this is a movie about butts, right. As we've (laughs) talked about, this is a movie about butts. And one of the things about butts, right. Is like, they're gendered, right? Like there's different attitudes and ideas about how you feel about your own butt, especially in a, we're in a pre Kardashian world huh. with the first Shrek, right? Where like, where like it's not the case in broad American society that necessarily like having a big butt is seen as as desirable, right? Um, you know, and so on and so forth. The notion that like. The idea, okay, so to, to, to put that more overt, you have Shrek who has his body with his bug bug goop and his poops and his smells and all the stuff that he revels in because he's this bachelor uh, and he's living, he has ice cream for dinner and bug paste and all that stuff. And then you have Fiona who during the day is the princess that everyone expects her to be, but then night has to see herself, right? And see her own body, which to her is this kind of shame, not necessarily just because she hates herself, which I think maybe is, is ex- exaggerated a little more in some of the other Shrek movies, not to positive effect, but rather because she can't fulfill the role that she's supposed to fill if if everybody is aware of what her body actually looks like after dark I mean, which you could read as like after she takes off her corset and her makeup what she actually looks like as a human being right without all this artifice that she's putting on to look like a princess right which i would take as saying like you know i have to look at my own butt right well i mean again maybe that's a reach on my part but i, I think that there's something there i mean because because this is also from the same era as like uh real women have curves right where that yeah, discourse I, I that, mean, that is being litigated in the culture. Well, absolutely, right? and that that yeah. like you know, uh, Pete, if you, if you think that butt discourse had not progressed by by this point, I refer you only to the works of Lopez, comma Jennifer, uh, or Lo. Which comma- are contemporaneous. It's a good thing we went through Jennifer Lopez last week because this is an era of J Lo, right? right? That exactly. Trek comes into yeah, this yeah, is, yeah. The, you know, who was who was blazing the way? You know. Uh, in in this uh you know discourse um this sort of this you know american culture body discourse or i guess world culture because this was probably around the same time it was kind of communication technology was consolidating it um and the internet was kind of beginning its its long slow uh march well slow and then very fast march to consolidate consolidate uh everything but i'm sorry you were talking about butts Oh yeah, so, so the idea, right, is that like Shrek is Shrek doesn't think that Fiona looks bad when she's an ogre when he sees her. Nor do I do I think Shrek is Shrek like humana humana humana, right? Like now there's something, right? That's not the idea either, right? Um, I think Shrek, I think Fiona is a is a is a pretty ogre, and Shrek likes her, but Shrek likes her as as a human being before the like pleasant 
discovery of what she really looks like, right? And I guess that idea of what you really look like, what do you look like after dark to a partner you share intimate moments with is a different sort of vulnerability than what you look like out to the world when you're in public trying to meet with people. And it was telling that the thing that makes Shrek want to leave Fiona, the sort of mistaken identity in our little romantic comedy, isn't the idea that Fiona is an ogre, right? But rather the idea that Fiona looks down on him. Right. That's what he that's what he won't tolerate is being shamed and kind of put down for being an ogre. Right. Um, He won't tolerate that from her in much the same way she shouldn't tolerate it for herself. And and that's and so they have that in common. Right. Is this notion that they that uh, Fiona needs to come to a realization about herself that Shrek has kind of already come to, but which he can't talk to anybody about. And so they have this really nice place in their kind of mutual experience of ogrehood where they really do meet in the middle. And it's very sweet, I think. And I, and I think it's about this idea that, that, you know, love is not true. Love is not distinct from ugly bodies. Right. Um, and ugly bodies aren't necessarily ugly, though they are often smelly. Right. Uh, I mean, somebody once told me that they're smelly. I, some, uh, I, would, <laughs> I, I smell like lilacs. Would you say but, that some some body once some told you? Body, oh, there it is. Oh, there it is. Oh, <laughs> yes. Shrek, and, and the journey of Shrek, Pete, is the journey of turning some body into somebody. And a buddy, yeah, also. <laughs> and also good. And also learning to be a buddy to Donkey. Yeah, there you go. So but the ass, right, <laughs> who, who is notable because he's a beast of burden who can talk, which is not what he's supposed to do. So if there's like, OK, a OK, hang on, like, hang on. But before we go and talk about donkey, okay. donkey, right. that, that'll do don- that. That will do donkey. When the most underrated donkey. Eddie Murphy performance, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a, a seminal animated performance that people okay. somehow forget is like seminal. Yes, we got to talk about donkey. But before yeah. we leave behind uh, the mutual experience of ogrehood, as you so eloquently described it, Pete, um, at the end of the movie, right, the the um, the what the line you see in the storybook is that they see uh, you see and they lived happily uh, they lived ugly ever after or something to that effect. Right. And like they just kind of like lean into the ugly aspect of things. And so my question to you guys is like, does that in any way kind of like undercut the I don't know, for lack of a better word, body positivity message of this? This sense that like, you know, like, well, they're not ugly, except, well, they are. Like they are like, to us, but to each other, they're not like, but it, it, it feels a little bit uh, um, wishy-washy by the end there. No, I mean, I think what I think here is when I alluded at the beginning to the idea of what is it about Shrek's relationship with contemporary culture that makes it feel like it endures. I think this is the heart of it here, which is that Shrek is ugly. And when you think about the experience today of being exposed constantly to social media pictures of everybody you know and don't know trying to look their absolute most beautiful, of course people are going to feel a lot that they're ugly and that there's something wrong with them and that and that they're going and that their bodies are not adequate or are um, you know not not even not inadequate, not not enough, but too much, right? And I think that there is a revelry in the idea of of being uglier than what uh, is being reflected back to you that you should be and kind of being able to project that you don't care. As Donkey says about Shrek, that's what I love about you. You don't care what other people think, right? Um, and and I think that that experience of reveling in ugliness is the most contemporary uh, concept that you find in Shrek. And a lot of the performance art and related sort of things I've seen involving Shrek and the kind of jokes about Shrek tend to focus on this idea of like, I am an ogre, Right. And you have, and I'm an ogre, and I don't care if you know that I'm an ogre, right? Um, 
And in that respect, I think body positivity is the wrong way to look at it because I think I thought I mean, I don't want to like pick up. I'm not trying to start a fight, but I don't really like body positivity very much um, because I think I mean, because I, I probably because of I like Foucault too much. Right. Which is like you can't just set up a dialectic. Right. You can't just like set up a dichotomy and you'd be like, well, I don't like body negativity, so I'm going to be body positive. Right. And then and if I'm body positive, I can't be body negative. Right. And, it, and it's like that, it's the opposite. Pete, right? No, one, and, no yeah. one would ever use that. No one would ever use that tool as a as a method of, of coercion or social control. Come on. <laughs> but that, I think so. The idea, right, is that the, that in the denial of the thing that is wrong in society, this is like the Foucault that I'm butchering is is built baked in the idea of the social control of the thing that you're you're opposed to right which is like by attempting to reframe and kind of control the discourse around what bodies are beautiful and what bodies aren't you're admitting to an obsession with the authority of like the beauty of people's bodies right and you're trying to like steer it in the way that you think is right but ultimately the power of it is undiminished right and and that and and, and that and when push comes to shove, you might not actually be doing as much as you think for uh, changing the things about the situation that are bad. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that this that you shouldn't go about it, right? And, well, but, that's, but, it's akin to like the Derridean idea of difference, which is that in differing from something, you defer to it, which is you know in in every day and kind of like natural conversation, it would be it would be like, well, you know, you know, Matt, if you say, young Matt, if you say you you uh, don't like everything your brother does like, isn't he really picking what you like and don't like? For? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. that, again, to the studio talk, right? This is, you could say, I guess maybe the question is, um, is this that final act there of making the two fairytale characters ugly, quote unquote ugly at the end, is that a def- deference to Disney, which they are um, intentionally yes. trying to spoof? I, I would, I would, I think you're right on the nose that it I is, think yeah, Shrek is, is obsessed Disney. with Disney. It is a difference. It is a Disney difference. Yeah, good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. But yeah, I would, I would compare. Like on one hand, you have like the Dove models, which are like it's okay to have the body that you have rather than the body that all the models have. Like, look at all these models who have a body that's like somewhat more like yours, right? As opposed to the other models, right? And then that's one way. And the other one is, I'm Shrek, I live in a swamp, right? Like, uh, donkey, get out of my, get out of my house, donkey, right? Like, which is a very different way of dismissing the authority of looking, looking the right way, right? A very different way to kind of like take away the, uh, the power of the shame of ugliness. Uh, from your life. But yes, while Shrek is in an interesting sort of dialogue with notions of beauty and ugliness, he is in a very anxious and straightforward dialogue with the commercial and cultural and legal authority of Disney and its attorneys. <laughs> for sure, for sure. All right, we got to um, we got to get to Donkey before, you know, before oh, yeah, our yeah. our time our time is up. Uh, you said underrated Eddie Murphy performance. So you're saying he took everything he learned as Mushu Right. <laughs> Again, I have not seen the animated Mulan. I've only seen the live action Mulan. Uh, so I don't actually know if Mushu is that good. Is Wait, Mushu did, a, a seminal performance? Didn't we do it on this podcast? Didn't we do it? We on- did the live action Mulan on this podcast. Huh. I don't know if we've ever done the animated Mulan. We, and if we, we did, did talk I, about the podcast. I did trap back to see the animated Mulan, and uh, it, it's it's good, right? You know, it just it's Eddie Murphy. He brings like this manic energy. Um, to an animal sidekick character, and he absolutely does bring that uh, um, those 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 skills and, and strengths to this. 
and and different I, like Mushu is a dragon, which may be that you know his his preferences, his predilections may have carried over into donkey. Mm, you know, there you go. Like, now it all makes sense. You know the dra- the the dragon romance. Well, that, that's that's not problematic anymore. I'm glad you uh cleared the slate of that one. <laughs> not problematic. I mean, I mean, look, people are into all kinds of different things. We have to we have to celebrate. You know, we have to celebrate uh, differences. I mean, you know, look, I'm a member of podcasters for decency, and I just want to ask you one thing: Are you against decency? you know are your are your children shrekking <laughs> the kids the kids are calling it shrekking would you matt would you say this is a movie that presents a donkey effing conundrum <laughs> because it's explicitly in the plot <laughs> it is funny that like when it's like okay so there is a fairy tale of snow white and a fairy tale of cinderella and this fairy tale of fiona uh, which is not a Disney property. That's the one we go for. And I do like the idea that Donkey has a little bit of Midsummer Night's Dream in him, which is another fairy tale that Disney doesn't own yet. Uh, which is, um, but but the notion that the dragon is sort of a take on a Queen Titania figure, and and the donkey in his sort of humble humility is something of a bottom, right? Because he's an ass. Um, <laughs> but I think that. I think one of the cool things of watching Donkey's performance here is that he does have a little bit of that Axel Foley quality, which is that he effortlessly articulates pretty complicated propositions when he's bantering with Shrek, right? Which is like, okay, like, what's the nature of our relationship and our friendship? Why do I want to live with you, right? Um, like, the scene where he's sitting on the rocking chair covered in, like, alligator skin, which is funny because he ends up sitting on the dragon skin, so it's it's like poetry. It rhymes, um, but uh, but he's talking about what like the relationship between like what is it that Shrek should be expected to do? Where is it that he should be expected to sleep? What's I mean? Oh man, I should have written down more of it. But he just he goes so fast and he kind of cycles through these different sorts of of ideas, arguing with Shrek about his worldview in a way that is just effortless and that children are never given pause by, right? Um, let me see if I can find some good donkey quotes. It's here. like, well, uh, yeah, it is, it, it is childlike in the sense of like, he's arguing in, in a certain sense about bedtime, right? Like he's arguing about like when and how and where, uh, he goes to bed. And so this is like, you know, can I sleep here? Can I sleep here? Can I sleep here? And Shrek is, is, you know, momentarily like in the role of the, of the parent, you know, maintaining boundaries, right? Like the, no, it's, you know, you gotta go, you gotta go sleep in your bed and your bed is, is outside on the grass. <laughs> your, bed, your bed is not, not here in, in the, in the warm room with me. So that, um, let, let me read a couple of profound donkey quotes from this movie. Please. All right. It's, a, um, it's the donkey. It's the donkey quoting conundrum. Yeah. <laughs> um, because that's what friends do. They forgive each other. Right. Um, it's uh, how about the that about this great line? You might have seen a house fly, maybe a super fly, but I bet you never seen a donkey fly. Like when donkey is doused with the fairy dust, the the pixie dust, and he starts to fly away. He has this very complicated indictment of Dumbo that he carries right, out, right? Exactly. There's, <laughs> there's, that's exactly it. The, and the the you know minstrel show Black Crows in the in yeah. in Dumbo. Only a true friend would be that truly honest. Is another thing he says. Um, let's see. It's. Uh, you don't know what it's like to be considered a freak. Maybe you do, but that's why we got to stick together, right? And so, so it, the the things that Donkey says, um, 
uh, they, they sort of build a argument for why Shrek should be concerned with not being alone. Right. Um, you know, I, that's another thing we have in common. I hate it when you've got someone in your face, you try to give someone a hit and they won't leave. And then there's a big, awkward silence. And then they like sit through the big, awkward silence. Right. Which sort of plays like, you know, oh, Donkey didn't know this when he said it, but he's also kind of forcing Shrek to confront the reality of having another person there. Right. He is. Um, I mean, it being a Midsummer Night's Dream, he is a, a Shakespeare character where there isn't like the the unraveling of the thoughts happens out loud. You know, it's not it's yeah. not like there's subtext in a in a like realistic drama uh, way where people say things other than than what they mean with Donkey. There, it's not um there isn't that there isn't that division he's sort of it's the the real process of of the mind kind of unfolding and like thinking thinking its thoughts uh out loud and he kind of overhears he he uh evinces what what Harold Bloom calls the the self overhearing um quality of a lot of a lot of Shakespeare's characters which is to say he relates to his own uh thoughts as though they were communications intended for someone else <laughs> Yeah, here's a, here's, a, here's another good one. Uh, don't worry, princess. I used to be afraid of the dark until no, wait, I'm still afraid of the dark. <laughs> it's like it's like surprisingly profound. But I guess I guess the main argument that Donkey is making is that he makes one argument, which is, of course, that because they're both being subjected to a genocide, Shrek might not might only be temporarily spared. But like, you know, he should recognize that he's part of the class of beings that Farquaad will eventually get around to purging. And so he should feel a common cause with the people like him that are kind of marginalized by Farquaad society. That, that's kind of one argument in Donkey's overall syllogism, right? And like another argument is that that they are frustrated and, and, and upset about similar things, right? Um, including not liking bad guests. And as such, this gives them something in common. And so the idea that being Wanting to have your own place to live where you're kind of have your privacy isn't something that excludes you from being companionate with somebody because you just have to find somebody else who also likes privacy. Like, for example, someone perfectly happy living in a tower for a couple of decades, right? Like that that could be a good match for you. You guys could just find a place and you have your own rooms when you need to retreat to them, right? Um, and yeah, and, and then the idea of honesty, the idea that Shrek is very honest with himself about who he is. And the notion that that honesty could be extended and deepened if he was sharing it with another person who was also being honest about who they were, that that might be an attractive proposition to Shrek. I think these are all like interesting and and compelling propositions by Donkey, which, again, if the if the trick of Shrek, which is not necessarily replicated in all the Shreks, is to feed the adult. It's like to put the spoons full of sugar on the medicine so the adult gets something that's worth watching while the kid gets the thing that they'll enjoy. Then Donkey like totally succeeds. Because Donkey, while you're watching him, just feels like a joke. Right? He just feels like a fun, happy-go-lucky. It could be Blue's Clues, right? He could be a character. like you, Donkey could just be telling you like where the mail is, right? But instead, he's telling you like the nature of relationships. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I like that. I, I, I think that, that it, it's part of what um, gives the action in the movie the, uh, the grounding and the kind of wind-up that's necessary for it to land the way that it should. And it's also it, for, for what it's worth, like it, it is the source of the one, it is the source of the one like really memorable line from Shrek. Like I remember b bits or I remember images, somebody. The, <laughs> no, sorry. the the one line from Shrek that gets, that gets quoted over and over is that'll do donkey. That'll do. 
<laughs> right? And that that like um you know, it wouldn't it's of course it's about donkey, right? The the one line that that uh that you remember, which is the after, idea that this yeah. is all a task that donkey has accomplished. That Shrek has sort of been taken along like the farmer and babe and is not fully aware. Sorry, I interrupted. No, yeah, that was sort sort of, but also like the, remember the context of it is that it's when he has tricked him, uh, into going, uh, across the bridge, right? Like by, by sort of becoming adversarial, a little bit adversarial towards him and like shaking the bridge and scaring him so that he, without knowing it moves across the bridge, uh, you know, but his mind focused on the kind of the adversarial situation with Shrek rather than on the, you know, the fear that he has of, of falling off the bridge into the pit of lava. Um, which is like, which is like the archetype of all comedy and romance, right? Which is like getting your light worldview shaken up in a way that forces you to kind of reach out to another person and reestablish a proper equilibrium. Um, that'll do yeah. donkey. <laughs> that'll do. <laughs> Right. Yeah, we're all, I mean, I suppose in that, that moment, we're all sort of donkey, but we, we really should strive to be Shrek. We should all strive to be grateful to the donkeys in our lives who compel us to move outside our comfort zone. Or, I, or, I, yeah, or, or, no, we should or all strive we, to be as comfortable with our bodies as Shrek is at the beginning of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> it gets harder, guys. It gets harder with every passing <laughs> month of quarantine. Uh, but, um, but, you know, someday, somebody, someday we'll, uh, um, we'll be able to get out and go on our adventures. I'm sorry, uh, Mark, did you have any reaction to our various discussions of Eddie Murphy as Donkey? Uh, I can't top any of the Shakespearean stuff that uh, that you guys put out there, other than to say that, um, I, I, not to take anything away from Eddie Murphy's um, performance, but I think part of the appeal of uh, and, and what makes Donkey so compelling is that Mike Myers keeps saying, referring to Donkey in that ridiculous Scottish <laughs> accent that he does. It, like it, it just like it speaks to like the 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 weirdness and offbeatness of the whole project. It's kind of all wrapped up in 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 the character of Donkey and the way that Mike Myers and his goddess action says Donkey. And it's also like the weirdness and offbeat and and slightly off kilter nature of the whole thing is also very much in peace with the sound of Smash Mouth. And in particular, like some of the weird uh, dissonant harmonies that you hear in the song All Star. Um, I don't know if that's exactly what they were going for, but it does create um, a, a compelling package, a consistent compelling package by the end. Definitely, like that flatted fifth in All Star. Like, hey, now you're an All Star, oh, get your game on. Work, yeah, yeah, exactly. That like uh, that kind of teeth. Wait, which, teeth which on one is this? There's a in the pro- the core progression of the I mean, Mark. You should do that. You brought it up. You sure. should, it, you hey, should hey, hey, now. So you hear this line. The yeah, this is the the tonic right now. And so here, dun 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 three four uh, flat five four three. If that makes any sense. It's like it's just something that's like dissonant. It's out of the scale. You know what it so is? It's like, the no 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 Batman riff kind of backwards. Yeah, yeah there you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, so that there is this there is this kind of musical moment that creates kind of instability and dissonance that is not it's it's resolved, but it's not resolved in the in the sort of traditional way. Um and it's kind of like it musically it's not played for this effect exactly in the song but it's kind of like stop hitting yourself stop hitting yourself a little bit the way the you know in the the top of that guitar riff is like you know that that uh 
Hey, and that's and where, what is the lyric over that? Hey, riff? now you're an all star. Get your game on. Go play. So, so hey I'll now, say the words and you do the riff and you point to me where the weird dissonance is. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's so it's, uh, so it's starting. Hey, now you're an all star. Get your game on. Go play. Get your game on. Get your game on. Oh, okay. 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 Or, uh, hey or get the show yeah, on. All-star. Get the show on. Get yeah, paid. that's that's oh, it. But okay. but but Pete, I you know I know that that you've heard you're heard. We're we're telling you you've heard that there is this secret chord, but you don't really care for music, <laughs> do you? Somebody once played Leonard Cohen's "Hallelujah" in a sex scene in the movie of Watchmen. <laughs> it was feeling pretty stupid, but hey, it's the movie of Watchmen, which was. Pretty stupid. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't say that, but anyway, it wasn't that bad. It was just slow. Just slow. Um, so, yes, this is yet another movie featuring Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, and probably the best use of it we've encountered so far in the film. The other ones being, of course, Zack Snyder's Watchmen and Zack Snyder's Snyder Cut of the Justice League, which uh, was just very heart-wrenching and baffling that it was played over the credits. Um but yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, Matt, what do you think? Do you think this is a movie? That, do you think Letter Coins Hallelujah is a song that can be happy or sad depending upon what part of it you play? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, he's referring to we 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 uh, traded some like wiki, some ridiculous Wikipedia articles where people say stupid things about Leonard Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. So this is the version that is the precursor to the Jeff Buckley version, which is the one that everyone knows. Okay. Um, that like, uh, this, this, so this version is, is sung by John Cale and the, the most prominent feature of it to me, I guess, well, it, it pairs down a lot of the really overwrought orchestration, which was kind of the point of the version that, that Leonard Cohen himself recorded. Not, it's not a version the the original recording that Leonard Cohen did, uh, on various positions and, and makes it this kind of like piano ballady, this like six, eight piano ballady, um, kind of song with like arpeggiated, you know, uh, piano chords and stuff. And that, and, and has a, has that sort of deep plaintive, uh, that plaintive quality, um, the, the, which, you know, the, 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 there are two ways. I'm, and I'm, I'm pulling this out of my, my butt here, but that's appropriate given the, the topic of the podcast. There are two ways to sing Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Uh, one is as if all the bad things have already happened to you. And the other is as if the, all the bad things are happening to you now. Right. And that like, this is the latter version, but it's less extreme, right? Cause there, there are gradations of that where from like mildly bummed to, you know, sad to despondent to, you know, screaming with grief and rage over, uh, over the injustice of the world. And that like, but the, the, the one kind of detail of this particular version that I don't, um, Oh, and uh, sorry. And then this is the version that kind of set what we think of now as the canonical verses, the, the canonical lyrics of Leonard Cohen's hallelujah, which are different from the ones that, that he originally recorded. So apparently John Cale, when he was, uh, gonna record the song, he went to Leonard Cohen and said, can I record your song? He said, yes. And by the way, here are like 300 verses from my notebooks, uh, that I, you know, with different Ouya rhymes that I did, you know, that, that I wrote. And he, John Cale picked out some from the, the original recording and some, some other ones. Um, 
as well. The, the, you know, I've, I've seen your flag on the, the, or baby, I've been here before. I've seen this room. I've walked this floor. Uh, I used to live alone before I knew you. And I've seen your flag on the marble arch, but love is not a victory march. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. Um, is that is from this, this later version. Uh, the Shrek the, version. The Shrek so version. Yeah, exactly. Yes. The, and, and then, and then Jeff Buckley heard John Cale's version and, and went on to, to record the, you know, more plaintive still. Right. But um, the same lyrics. So it's the Buckley Shrek version. Yeah, exactly. The, the okay. lyrics, the, the, um, or sorry, the Which Kale. Which is not Shrek, played in the, the Justice Kale, League. The, no, that's a, that's a different. Uh, so I, the Kale Buckley Shrek. <laughs> so that that um, but the thing the sorry the notable thing I'll, I keep I keep teasing this I'll get around to it about this one to me is that he doesn't do the rhyme right. It's you know, uh, uh, baby, I've been here before. I've seen this room. I've walked this floor. I used to live alone before I knew you. I've seen your flag on the marble <laughs> arch, but like, and he doesn't do the Ouya uh, rhyme, which is the whole point of the song. <laughs> Right. The whole point. Uh, for, for those of you focused on the narrative, what's happening at this point in the story is that Shrek and Fiona have gone their separate ways. And whereas once Fiona was relatively content in her tower and Shrek was relatively content in his swamp home. Now that Fiona is in a castle, she's despondent. And now that uh, Shrek is alone in his swamp home, he is despondent, which reflects that the journey has changed both of them, right? And and that this that they've created something in their lives that they won't be able to just uh, look away from or ignore, um, right? And then, and then this is the sort of context for playing this uh, version of Leonard Cohen's Alleluia, which feels a lot more appropriate than some of the other versions at times that we've seen it. Um, so, yeah, well, so yeah, because that, because yeah. Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah is is you know is about to a certain in a certain way in a certain light it's about kind of reconciling your own thoughts and feelings about your erotic attachments right okay and that's what they're doing here right like right. they have this romance they have this this you know uh, potential not romance in the the knightly sense in the chivalric sense they they have ironically a, you know uh, they have a a yeah exactly they think they're in one kind of romance and they yeah. turn out to be in another kind of romance um, they have this kind of romance connection and it's it's kind of like altered their altered their thoughts about what their life is and they're kind of like w- wondering what the the kind of the greater meaning of this is vis-a-vis their how they should how they ought to to live their life which is not unrelated it's probably not exactly but it's not unrelated to the manifest topic of of uh hallelujah uh, hallelujah, uh when leonard cohen when leonard cohen wrote it so so it's it's you know appropriate thematically appropriate and not quite such a hat on a hat the way the way it is when the the song is meant to just highlight the irony of singing hallelujah 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 over and over and over and that like uh you know to to just throw a wash of sadness you know um to just jackson pollock splatter some sadness onto the uh onto the situation um, whatever, whatever it is. So yeah, it is. I, I agree with you that this is probably the strong use, the strong music supervision use of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah in a, uh, uh, in a movie. Were there any other musical moments from the Shrek? Uh... Somebody. What? <laughs> there was one, there was, uh, by the way, there is a Wikipedia page called list of songs featured in Shrek in case you've got some time. And it goes through all four, all, I think, all four theatrical films, as well as several of the specials and shorts. So it is a full, uh, a full Shrektography. Um, there is, there is a song. Oh, it's when they sing. 
Which is the there's a song where there's an oi 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 thrown in near the end. Is it at the beginning? No, of, it's, I'm yeah, a believer, I believe. Or? Yeah, I thought yeah. love yeah. was only in fairy tales. Oi oi oi! Yeah. So this is a very like ska skanky movie, right? This is as a sort of like post ska revival vibe to it. Um, again, this notion of kind of dirtiness. Uh, coming in and and uh, and and fueling fuel of energy. What about that? What about I'm a believer as as a uh, as the love theme from Shrek? Um, is that does that feel credible to you? Oh yeah, I'm a believer. Parenthesis love theme from Shrek. Close parenthesis. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I thought love was only true in fairy tales, meant for someone else, for not to me. Which of course has an irony because they are fairy tale characters in a fairy tale situation. Um, but the idea that that Shrek had to become a believer is perhaps more profound even in the movie Shrek than in the song I'm a believer. Well, it's, <laughs> it's, you know, I saw her face, then I'm a believer, right? And that, yeah. like, here the face is not, it's actually a metaphor for her, not yeah. her face, for her, for her non-physical appearance. Like, I, I got to know her, uh, yeah. her kind of actual nature. And now, now I'm a believer, um, right. is the, the, what it means in the context of the of the thing yeah <laughs> which is hilarious the idea of like i saw fiona's face meaning like i saw the image that she has of herself in her private moments that she shared with me and in like an intimate moment of vulnerability because she saw the possibility of like sharing sharing her life with me which had heretofore seemed impossible right and so like and oh, i'm a believer right which is a lot different than like i was never in love but then i saw someone attractive Right, which is I think the vibe the song often has. Um, I mean, I don't know that, that's uh, the vibe then, that adolescence often has too, right? The, 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 like, maybe maybe close close to the last one that I'll, that I'll point out is a song by the Proclaimers called uh, "I'm on my way." When he sets off on the on the journey, um, I'm on my way from misery to happiness today. Uh huh, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh. I'm on my way, which is on the that Proclaimers album, "Sunshine on Leith." Um, I'll, I'll just say it's ironic that they chose that song because, as it turns out, uh, the journey was exactly five hundred miles. Really? And five, oh. and then he walked five hundred more. <laughs> Amazing! Amazing. <laughs> Trick is full of wisdom. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we, we made. We might need to leave our investigation of the wisdom of Shrek there, though. So please, uh, please join in the comments in the in uh, join in the the conversation in, in the comments. Tell us uh, what you think about your rewatch of Shrek. It's it's available on Hulu. Um, or wherever, uh, wherever fine movies are stolen. So that's, uh, that's the Overthinking Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much to Pete and to Mark for podcasting. Uh, and we hope you enjoyed this, uh, this look back into the early 2000s and to the days of Smash Mouth and the days of, of Ska. Um, that's, uh, this has been, been a lot of fun. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably does nay does nay Somebody